reflecting about what it means to take refuge in the three treasures. And what this means to me every day, you know, day to day, not in the abstract, but actually to take refuge. And especially, you know, what it means when practice is difficult. Because when it's easy, and everything is easy in a way, but what does it mean to take refuge when it's not easy? Dugo Kiense Rinpoche said that the essence of taking refuge is to have complete confidence in the three treasures, regardless of life circumstances, good or bad. So taking refuge is not striking deals with the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It's not, I trust you as long as things go my way, and when they don't, all bets are off. It is complete trust, a complete in the sense that it is all-pervading. And probably most of us have never experienced that degree of trust, that completeness. Dadaroshi described it in his book, Heart of Being, he would often talk about it as a trust that is devoid of safety nets. It just isn't a safety net. <clears throat> and he would talk about you know, that, that character for being one with, which is really that taking refuge, kie. And, and kie, the first part, kie is to unreservedly throw oneself into. And the second part, a, is to rely upon. And he would talk about it, um, the image that he would give was of his son who would stand on top of the dresser as Dadaroshi took a few steps back and would stand there with his arms outstretched and his son would leap in the air into Dadaroshi's arms, completely trusting that he would be there, that he would be there to catch him. And as I remember that, that image, I remember we, we had a dog like that, a little dachshund, who would climb up on my mother's bed and he would go to the edge of the bed and leap into space knowing that we would be there to catch him and all four legs would be horizontal and his leg, his ears would be horizontal. <laughs> and he would just jump, but he would do this over and over again. And there was no ounce in his being of um, uh, hesitancy. There was nothing, nothing held back. Maybe he just had a very small brain. <laughs> but he was all in, all in. <laughs> and I've been thinking a lot about this, and you know, if there are no sef safety nets, who's catching you? What's catching you? Yeah, yourself, of course. By trusting the Dharma, aligning with the Dharma, you catch yourself. There is nobody else. And we know this, and we hear this all the time, but do we really know it? The teacher doesn't catch you. God doesn't catch you. You catch yourself. And because on occasion we do miss, in the context of the Sangha, we catch each other. 
And to me, it's interesting that, that the Japanese, you know, points to both completely relying upon the food treasures, but also on this um, complete openness, complete vulnerability, really, and complete nakedness. You know, that throwing oneself into when you don't even know what you're throwing yourself into. And that's not usually how we think about refuge, right? We think of it as a shelter, as being protected from the elements, from each other, from whatever bad could happen to me. Refuge protects me from that. And this is, seems almost the opposite. You put yourself out there completely, and that's the protection. But even what this vulnerability really is, it doesn't necessarily match um, our, our image, our image of it. You know, this, it's not just if I say what I'm thinking, if I say what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, if I share that with you without holding back, then I'm being vulnerable. And I think true vulnerability is much more subtle than that. It's a quality that, that, that we can feel, we can certainly sense in ourselves, we can sense in each other. And it's very tender. It's a tenderness that, to me, is, is just the very tip of the iceberg of what you can communicate with words. We say so much. We tend to say so much, but what are we actually saying? The, the whole incident in Paris, in Charlie Hebdo newspaper, has really been working on me, and uh, it came up as I was writing this talk. And I, I shared with a couple of, of you, I was really thinking, what does it mean, freedom of speech? Because it seems to, to me, at least in, uh, maybe to some, some of us, you know, the freedom to say whatever we want, you know, to do what we want without consequence. But that's impossible. Right? We don't live as independent bubbles uh, that have no effect on the other bubbles. And it's one thing to, to laugh, you know, to make fun, to poke fun at what's threatening. You know, as Stefan Charbonnier, the, the editor, said, he would rather die on his knees um, than, um, what did he say? Yeah, he would rather die on his knees than, than live, um, no, he would rather die standing than live on his knees. And so what I understand is what, what he, this is what he felt he needed to, to do. Certainly not for me to, to say or to question, but I question in the sense that he was not alone. He was not the only one affected, of course. What he said, what he did, had an effect on the people around him. And I read an article by uh, a woman, Roxanne Gay, uh, read an, uh, had an article in The Guardian, and, and she was saying exactly this, you know, that the freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. And she was pointing to that, um, uh, the, the movement that arose right away, you know, people were saying, you know, I am Charlie, just as people have said, I am Eric Gardner. Michael Brown, and she said, if I don't say that, she said, I am not Charlie. 
And if I say that, does that mean that I am for the terrorists? And she said, when our responses are limited to you are either with us or against us, those that need to mourn and be sympathetic to complexities are cast as villains. So if you're either right or wrong, if I'm on this camp or that camp, I lose the complexity of what it actually means to be human, what it means to have competing desires, to change my mind, to be uncertain, to be confused. Do we have the ability to hold all of it? It is very difficult to hold all of it. But this is what it means to be human. We don't always walk a straight line. Most of the time, we don't walk a straight line. So I think that at its heart, this tenderness you know, it's a recognition that the universe, and of course that includes us, is a, an infinitely fragile place. And this is terrifying. You know, so some of us respond with hubris, with bravado. Some of us retreat, we shut down. But some of us recognize that the only way to deal with this fragility is to face it, is to turn toward it, is to hold it with a great deal of respect, an enormous respect and to wonder what is it really. And so recognizing our fragility, we take refuge in that what is, which is not fragile. We take refuge in that which is in fact unbreakable, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And they cannot be broken because they are whole. They are all pervading. The Buddha treasure is the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, but it's also Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, perfect, complete, enlightenment. It's our nature, or this is our nature. We may not feel like it often, but this doesn't make it any less true. It is all things are illuminated right now. We may be squinting, we may be bleary-eyed, we may not see it. It is true. It is here, always. And Buddha is also the realization of that nature. And so there, there is light. And then there is seeing that light. There is living that light. There is feeling its warmth. And it is also the infinite manifestations of Buddhas throughout space and time. We chant that every day, several times a day. All Buddhas throughout space and time. We gather in that chant, we gather all the Buddhas that have ever lived, all the Buddhas that will ever live to this room. And in one sense, it's a formality. You know, they don't need an invitation. They've always been here. They're home, just as we're home. But in inviting them and in invoking them, we give, actually they give us the opportunity to notice, to remember once again that yes, here they are all the infinite Buddhas that make up the Buddha treasure. And the Dharma treasure is the Buddha's teachings, but it's also undefiled purity. And the reason it's undefiled is because it reaches everywhere, so there's nothing outside that can stain it. You can't miss it. You can't offend the Dharma treasure. 
feedback. You can't offend the Dharma treasure. It reaches everywhere. It embraces everything. It accepts everything. No, not without consequence. But it accepts everything. The Dharma is also the teachings, very practically. The teachings that have been handed down generation after generation. All the sutras, all the commentaries, the oral teachings, all the words that give expression to the profound truth that the Buddha realized. And that we are fortunate enough to have access to. <coughs> it's all the wisdom of all of those who have walked the path before us and who have said, this is what it's like to be human. This is what you can expect. The Sangha treasure is a community of practitioners. It's all of us and everybody else who's practicing. It is also the virtue of harmony. And it takes work. It takes work to maintain this harmony. But this is, this is what Sangha does. You know, we're not just a crowd, you know, a random gathering of people or even a deliberate gathering of people. A, an intentional gathering of people. That's not enough, that's not Sangha. Sangha is the virtue of harmony. Without harmony, there is no Sangha. So it's a jewel and it's rough at first. But as we hear so many times, we carefully polish it. We deliberately polish it until it shines, until it's brilliant. Sangha is the abode of the Buddha and the Dharma. It is also the practice of the Buddha's Dharma. So it's the doing of that Dharma, the embodiment of the Buddha's teachings in our own lives. I sometimes think about it as a kind of um, consistency, uh, congruity. In uh, his book, No Man is an Island, Thomas Merton says, the truth in things is the reality. In our minds, it is the conformity of our understanding with the things known. In our words, it is the conformity of our words to what we think. And in our conduct, it is the conformity of our acts to what we are supposed to be. And I think, humbly, I would change that last line to read, it's the conformity of our acts to what we truly are. It's no gap. Thought, speech, and action match. That's the virtue of harmony. And this aspect of practice, I think requires infinite trust in yourself, relentless patience, and unwavering determination. Because so often inside and outside don't match. Sometimes we don't know what's inside. We don't understand outside. And so sometimes there is a mismatch. And so we practice, we practice. One of my favorite anecdotes, and I've, I've quoted it a couple of times at least, but I love it, is of uh, A.J. Muskie, who was a Dutch-American 
minister and peace activist, and who during the Vietnam War would stand every night, every evening outside the White House holding a candle, a lit candle, uh, in protest of the war. And one night a reporter went up to him and said, Mr. Musty, do you really think that lighting a candle is going to change the policies of our country? And Musty said, oh no, sir, you have it all wrong. I am not doing this to change the country. I am doing this so the country won't change me. I do this so as not to be swept up by the world's confusion, by its greed, its anger, its ignorance, which is my own desire and anger and ignorance. I do this so that the world won't change me. I change, and the world changes, but I do this so that the world won't change me. practice is lighting that candle every day, no matter the weather. When you stand with your candle and you hold it high and it's 70 degrees outside and it's so clear that you can see the stars as if they're three dimensions, you could reach and touch the Big Dipper. And you stand there when it's pouring and when it's hailing and when it's snowing. You stand there when you don't want to stand there, when you think I can no longer stand here and you stand there. And you stand there in the middle of a hurricane if you have to. And if you understand that candle, if you understand standing, then you know that all you need to do is light it and hold it up. It's very simple. You may not know whether you can feel the difference. Is it doing anything? You may not know if you have the right candle to begin with, you just stand and you hold it. Then not even a typhoon can put it out. Mervyn says, <coughs> it takes more courage than we imagine to be perfectly simple with others. Our frankness is often spoiled by our fear. And he's talking about sincerity. We become afraid, we become confused. And in our confusion, so often we turn out to try to get signals, what is right, what is happening. And we forget, we forget, we're so uh, caught up in the world that seems so messed up that we forget, oh, I just have to look in. We forget, oh, I'm still holding the candle and it's lit. He says, your idea of me is fabricated with materials you have borrowed from other people and from yourself. What you think of me depends on what you think of yourself. Perhaps you create your idea of me out of materials that you would like to eliminate from your idea of yourself. Perhaps your idea of me is a reflection of what other people think of you. Or perhaps you think of me as or what you think of me is simply what you think I think of you. In any case, we can't see ourselves. We certainly can't see the other. And again, in the middle of this muddle, we forget we're still holding that candle. 
We're always holding it. And it is it. In fact, we don't even actually have to light it. It's always been burning. And it will not be put out. It's impossible to put it out. We try, we sure try. Because we still think it's a candle. We still think, I picked it up. I have to light it and I have to make sure you don't take it from me. But actually, it can be taken. No one can take from you what you have always had. You cannot lose what you never were missing. Let's face it, and sometimes we just we just can't see that. And we, we don't feel it. The candle seems definitely to be out or it's whistling. And that's the time to turn to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Look, it's always time. But especially when we think we're lost. Especially when we think we can't find the ground under our feet. This book, um, All the Light We Cannot See, Kathleen Dorr, very beautifully speaks of uh, the protagonist, it's a girl, Rumi Lohr, who's um, you know, five, a little before, uh, a little younger than six years old, and she's going blind. And her father is a master locksmith, and he's very good with his hands. And so every time her birthday comes around, he designs a puzzle, some kind of uh, box, a miniature box that has a puzzle that she has to solve in order to open and to see what's inside, the jewel that's inside. But as she starts to lose her sight, what he does for her is he builds a miniature city. He builds Paris for her with every single building, every roof, every cornice, every tree, every grate, every piece of sidewalk. And he asks her to start seeing it with her hands. And in the beginning she does this and she thinks there's no relationship from the model to life because the real street, she can smell the fishmonger when she's passing by, and she can smell the bakers a block away, and she can feel the whenever the sidewalk changes or a dip. And the model seems inert, seems <coughs> devoid of life. But he insists, he insists that she study it, and so she does. And by the time she's six years old, she's completely blind. She keeps studying the, the model, being with it, becoming familiar with this city that now has to be inside her. And when she turns seven, they go out for a walk. And he takes her a few blocks away from their home. And he puts her you know, in the middle of the sidewalk, spins her 
three times and says, now, take us home. And her heart sinks. And she, the first thing that she thinks is, I can't do that. I can't do this. It's too big. You know, all the smells are, are, are blending with each other, all the sounds. She can sort of hear crows and the children from the playground a few blocks away. And he says to her, and he sees her face, and he says to her, Marie, calm yourself. You can do this. You know the model. You have your cane. Take us home. And she can't. She can't. She doesn't even know which way to turn. And she takes them on a detour six blocks away, and that day she can't do it. And so the next week, on a Tuesday, they go out again. And again, she can't do it. She goes a little bit farther, but she still can't do it. It is too big. There's too much noise. There's too much chaos. There's, there's too many things coming at her. She can't distinguish them one from the other. But they keep doing this, Tuesday after Tuesday. Until one day, a few days after she turns eight, it's the winter morning, and they go out. And her father takes her to yet another street, six blocks away from their home. And he spins her around three times and says, take us home. And she realizes for the first time, she's not afraid. Her heart did not sink into her stomach. And she thinks, maybe I can do this. And she thinks to herself, Marie, calm yourself, be still. And she begins to listen. And she realizes she can hear the fountain from that park that they always pass on the way to the museum where her father works. And that if she really concentrates, she can smell the eucalyptus and the alcohol from the apothecary. And so with complete confidence, she says, we turn left. And they turn, and her father stands behind her just a few steps behind. And he's jingling his keys in his pocket, waiting for her to start. And she starts walking. And she touches the sidewalk with her cane. And she feels the grate that should be right in front of the bakers. And then she starts counting her steps. And there's one grate, two grates, three grates. And she knows, oh, here we turn right. And they turn right. And she smells the butcher a couple of houses down. And she realizes, I'm going the right way. And she keeps walking. And 20 minutes later, they're at the corner of her block. And she turns, and she feels her father look up at the sky with this huge smile. And even though she can't see, she knows that he is looking up and he's smiling. And his hair is standing on end in all these directions, and it's wet with snow, and his um, scarf is askew on his shoulders, and she knows that. And she takes a few more steps, and she touches the bark of the cedar right outside her house of her friend. And in a moment, he sweeps her up from under her arms and twirls her around, and he's laughing, and she's laughing. And she realizes, I did it. I did it. And not only that, she realizes she will never be lost again because it's inside her. She doesn't need anything else. And now she knows. There always was, but now she knows. 
he has it. We have been practicing in all this time. Some of you since two hours ago. Some of you 10 years, 20 years. Each of us to the extent of our ability. And we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget what brought us here and what keeps us here day after day, week after week. And let us not um, forget everything, everything that we do have. Because whatever we think we've lost doesn't come close to what we have, what we still have, what we always have. This body, this breath, this seat, these buildings, these teachings, the fact that I want to practice, the fact that I have the ability to practice, the time to practice, all of these are still here. And so is the inextinguishable Dharma, like that candle that will not be put out. All the light you cannot see, but which is right there without a doubt. When we seem to have lost that ground under our feet, let us turn towards each other and be that ground. Again, that is what Sangha does. That is what Shantideva says, right? That, that vow to be the ground, to be the sustenance, to be the bridge, to be the raft, whatever people need to be the guard, the protector, the guide, food, medicine, whatever is needed, that's where we can be for each other. We are the Sangha treasure, so that is within our ability. We could each practice on our own and that would be good, and it would be powerful. Instead, we do it like this, because it is good, and it's powerful. This is why we're here and for each other, to remind ourselves, to remind each other, as, as many times as we need to. Like, don't let the world change you. Calm yourself, be still, and listen deeply, feel deeply. Look around you. We are not alone. We are not bereft. We still have everything that we will ever need. <laughs>